anything that D Governor DeWine said, and I don't know what he said. So he basically said, if we don't get our crap together, he's going to have another meeting next week, and if the cases are still out of control, that he's shutting down restaurants, bars, and fitness centers. Okay, nice. Nice. Yeah. I can't hear Rick. Rick's talking. But I wear them in public. I think a lot of people wear them out of respect. I quit. But go ahead. But, kind of behaving with all this stuff. Yeah. So it doesn't, the mathematics ain't adding up. No, it really doesn't. Plus, for example, I'll give you a, I'll give you a case in point. So our friend Mike Blake out in Monmouth, Illinois, by the way, um, they've been shut down. Like they're not even, they haven't been allowed to even meet in church anywhere indoors or anything. So they've been having church throughout the summer out on the street and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, but basically about half the town as of last week was going through COVID. Uh, and they were following all the restrictions, all the masking and everything. So the data really shows us that it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. But at the same time, if I'm in a place and they ask me to wear one or, and if their if they're business is being you know, risk of shutting down and it's for the sake of their job, of course, I'll wear one. But I actually don't believe it does really anything. But one of the things I did want to mention, by the way, because I found this out today, is that... Um, I think it was September 20th, Ohio passed a law. It's in law now, uh, even though it should be according to the Constitution anyway. But Ohio passed a law that the governor cannot shut down churches and prevent us from meeting. Amen. <laughs> so even if there wasn't a law, we still would continue to meet anyway. Uh, that's a decision that we've made as church leadership is concerned. But that's just one of the things that uh, has happened that I was not aware of that happened in the middle of September. And I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. So in case anything comes up in your discussions, that's something that's, that's uh, pretty interesting. All right. Okay. All right. With all that, so we are, we are diving back into how to study the Bible. And we're going to talk about the literal factor tonight. I love this one. Uh, this one is another one, again, when you take it according to its value and you start to look at it from the scriptures and, and the perspectives that it brings, there's a lot of questions that can be answered. And there are a lot of things, frankly, that people um, will twist and rest in the scriptures um, to, in order to basically believe whatever they want and where false doctrine even comes from uh, is because they they don't follow this rule of Bible study. So hopefully you guys have been following along. We're going to uh, even mention a few of, of the older uh, Bible study factors uh, that, that this one really plays into as well. So we're going to talk about this one. All right. So first of all, as we're talking about this, let's go ahead and, and define it. So we've got the literal factor, number 10 out of 15. So we're nearing the end of how to study the Bible. But let's define this factor. So define this factor. So always take a passage literally unless it is clear in the passage that you are dealing with symbolism. Now, you guys, I'm sure, have come across very difficult passages or different Christians that believe different things about, for example, like the book of Revelation. Um, the Roman Catholics believe that Revelation in general is just all symbolic. 
They don't think any of it is literal, and they metaphorically apply it. And many, many Christians today have tended to go more towards that direction. And as a result, they don't believe in things like the rapture. They don't believe in the literal second coming of Jesus Christ. There's just a lot of things that they end up taking completely out of context and then just making it say whatever they want. Uh, Another great example is Genesis chapter 1, the six days of creation. There's a lot of people that do not believe that the six days of creation are literal. And yet when you read it, It says evening and morning were the first day, evening and morning were the second day, and so on and so forth. So they they have to go in there and they have to completely redefine these terms in order to say that that was not literal. But people do that all the time because they just don't want to believe what it says. So one of the big rules of Bible study is that you need to take a passage literally unless God makes it clear that it is symbolic. And this is really wrapped around the whole thought that God wrote his book to us to reveal truth. He never wrote his book to us to hide truth or to make it complicated. He never does. Like, why would God do that? I know sometimes when you're reading your Bible, you're like, what in the world is going on here? No. Okay, I get that. But you also have to follow, which we're going to hit this a little bit later. You also have to follow another rule of Bible study, and that is the maturity factor. There are certain things that you're just not going to understand until you grow in your knowledge of the Bible or grow even in your faith about what the Bible says. But the Bible is not complicated. It's just not. If you slow down, especially difficult passages, and you read and you know who's speaking, who are they speaking to, what are they talking about, why would they say this, you can really understand everything there is to know about any particular chapter or verse in the Bible. Most people just don't want to do that. Uh, But that is something that we're even taught in school when it comes to just basic language arts. So these verses uh, on your guys' study sheet are, are really key because God wants to reveal himself. He's never in the business of hiding himself from anybody. And that makes sense because if God loves the world and if God died for the world, then he must make himself known. It must be clear. And so if God has a book, it will be clearly understood. So you got Romans 1, 19 and 20. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And that's all of humanity. God has revealed himself in creation because he wants to be known and understood. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, These, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So the first passage, Romans 1, 19 and 20, God reveals himself in creation. Romans 2, God reveals his law by putting it on your heart and your conscience bears witness to that law. So he's put it inside of every human being. And this is one of the reasons why you can have confidence that when you speak the truth, To people in general, God is going to work on them. There's a lot of times I feel very intimidated talking to somebody because I feel like they're going to come against me and and somehow prove that what I'm saying is wrong. You with me on that? Anybody else feel that way? Okay. But the fact is, regardless of how you feel, when you teach the truth, when you share the truth with somebody, it goes inside of them and God's law is revealed through their conscience that what you're saying is actually true. They might get mad, they may disagree with you, but inside God has put something in every human being that testifies that what you're saying is actually true. That's incredible. That gives me great confidence because sometimes I get rattled when people get frustrated with me or mad at me or or come against me or argue with me. 
which is normal. But I can have confidence that when I'm speaking the truth of God's word, not my opinion, when I'm speaking the truth of God's word, that God is going to use that in that person's life, whether they like it or not. So it's very helpful, very helpful. So God's revealed himself in creation, Romans 1. He's revealed himself in every human being by putting his law in their hearts, and their conscience bears witness to that law in Romans 2. And then Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the Father by the prophets, and those, those prophecies were then written down, Old Testament, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, when Jesus came. And those events were written down, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds. So God put a testimony of himself in creation, in the heart of man, and in a book, the Word of God. Those are the three strongest testimonies that God wants to reveal himself to every human being. I love that. And then, of course, in 2 Peter 1, 16 and 19 through 21, it talks about the scriptures. So you can read that a little bit later. But what I love about Proverbs 2, 6, is it says, For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh, cometh knowledge and understanding. And in James chapter 1, it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally. So if you want wisdom, if a person comes to God, and says, God, I want to know you. I want to understand you. I, I want this to be clear. God will do that. He will. He will fulfill his promise on that. Oftentimes people say, well, I've done that and it didn't work. Well, the reason why it didn't work is because they truly didn't want to know God. If you truly want to know God and your motive is pure in that, he will honor your request and he will teach you. A lot of people can come in here. It's amazing. Every time, and this happens every time that we're even in this room, you guys can come in here and many of you leave getting nothing while many of you leave getting incredible things. How is that possible? Because I'm teaching the same thing to every person that's in here. It's your hard attitude. Your hard attitude can shut off everything and you can walk out of here saying, yeah, that was boring. It was dumb. I got nothing. Well, the problem wasn't me or God's word. It's you. It's your hard attitude. Or you can leave here going, oh my gosh, that was incredible. It all comes back down to that. And it's the same thing with God. So if you're willing to take the Bible literally, God can teach you some amazing things. All right, let's hit some important concepts. So first of all, God is a communicator. That's your first blank. God is a communicator. God is a communicator, and this pattern is clearly seen in the scriptures beginning in Genesis chapter 1. He spoke creation into existence, gave testimony to the truth through his created works, wrote the law of God on each person's heart, endued the eternal witness of the conscience to each person, sent prophets to speak his words to people, manifested Jesus Christ on the earth through his words and works, and penned and then preserved the scriptures through mankind without corruption. Anyone that says that God is not a communicator and a revealer of truth is willfully ignorant, and that is absolutely true. God has spent the entirety of humanity, of human history, communicating to mankind. It's the hearts of men that don't want to hear what God has to say. God has made himself abundantly clear. We are the ones that are wrong in our hearts of why we don't hear God. Secondly, very few passages in the Bible are symbolic. The symbols that do exist are usually clearly defined in the immediate context. In the immediate context, and that's our factor number one, Bible study number one, talking about context. So symbols that do exist are usually clearly defined in the immediate context. And those that are not defined are, are defined elsewhere in scriptures by comparing scripture with scripture. And that would be factor number six. So this is why we delay this one a little bit farther because now you're going to employ other rules of Bible study when it comes to this particular rule. So that's important. Very few passages in the Bible are symbolic. Very few. Very few. 
So let's take a look at some figurative examples found in the scriptures. So let's take a look at some examples. All right, first of all, parables. Parables are probably the easiest thing to identify if it's symbolism or not. So let's go to Matthew 13, and then we'll take a look at Luke 16. So go to Matthew 13 first, Matthew chapter 13. And you got to keep in mind with these things, these literary forms, that God often in his book will speak just like we do. Because he's trying to relate to us. He's trying to reveal himself. He's trying to teach us. So he has humbled himself and actually speaks our language so we can understand. And a lot of people don't understand that. They don't get that. So in Matthew 13, verse 1. All right. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Verse 3. And he spake many things unto them in, what's the word? Parables. Parables. Parables saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside. And then again in verse 5, stony places. And then in verse 7, among thorns. And then in verse 8, good ground. And then he ends the parable by, by saying in verse 9, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now look at what Jesus said in, in verse 10 and 11. And the disciples came and said unto them, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it, it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall he be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore I speak to them, speak I to them in parables, because they, seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Esaias, which saith, and here it is, here's the hard attitude, by hearing ye shall hear, and not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. So he says that these people can't understand these parables, first of all, because they don't want to. Their heart is wax gross because of their sin. They don't want to get right with God. And their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes they have closed. So they've closed their ears and closed their eyes. And so God is beginning to speak to them in parables. And parables are simply just using a story, like it says on your study sheet, in a figurative sense to communicate deeper doctrinal spiritual truths. So he was preaching plainly from Matthew chapter, uh, when he started his ministry, Matthew chapter 4, all the way through to Matthew chapter 12. But now the Jews have flat out rejected Jesus, and now he's changed his presentation tactics, and now he's gone to parables. But what's interesting is that as he's teaching to them in parables, you find out that he, with his disciples, actually tells them exactly what he's talking about. Oh, the seed, it's the word of God. Oh, the field, it's the world. You continue to read in chapter 13, and Jesus defines every single symbol and what it means and what it should be defined as. But the people that didn't want to hear Jesus, they just walked away and never came back. They're like, oh, great, he's telling stories now. How am I supposed to understand that? Forget it, I'm done. Where the disciples stuck around, and they're like, what's the meaning of that? Like, why are you teaching this way? And, and what does this parable mean? And what does that parable mean? And then Jesus unloads all of it, and he reveals all of it. So he's really good about that. So the Bible really defines all these sorts of things, and it's really cool. Go over to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. 
Now this is one that if you were to um, go into other commentaries or books that men write about the Bible, about what they think the Bible is saying, um, or even if you have study notes in your Bible, uh, oftentimes you'll get to chapter 16 and verse 19. It's the beginning of the rich man and Lazarus. And there are many people that say this is a parable. Because it's written in a parable type form. Like when you read through the, the parable, like they say, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, it just sounds like a parable. So we're just going to call it a parable. But here's the thing. What does it say? Verse 19. Jesus comes in and he says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sore. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, which is the Old Testament, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Did you hear anything in there where Jesus said, And Jesus spake this parable unto them? No. So what are we to believe? It sounds like a parable, doesn't it? So what do we do? Take it literally? Yes. According to the rule. Take every passage literally unless it's clear that it is not. So one of the things that's amazing to me is that you take this passage. Jesus didn't say anything about it being a parable. So right out of the bat, I'm like, oh my goodness. This is amazing. There's so many things here now that I can take that are actually literal. So there is a place to tell. We know it's in the center of the earth. Jesus even talks about that. And there's two sides of it now. So now you have this entire picture, which is pretty amazing. So you got earth. In the center of the earth, there's hell. Jesus talks about that because he says that the Son of Man is going to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here is this in the center of the earth is where hell is. And then Abraham describes to Lazarus what hell even looks like. So on the one side of hell, and then you have this great gulf that's fixed in between, and then you have another side of hell. So on this side of hell, you've got the fires of hell, because he's tormented in this flame, and there's a great gulf that's fixed, so that way a person here can't come over here, and a person that's here can't come over here. And here you've got Abraham. This is my best representation of Abraham. You've got Abraham. We'll give him a headband. Abraham, because you know they got beards after death. So, so you got Abraham, and then you got Lazarus. Lazarus is probably clean shaven, I'm sure. All right. So, and then you got the dude over here in the flames, the rich man. Okay. And so here he is. 
And he's saying, can he just dip the tip of his finger in water? So obviously there's water over here because he's talking about it. Can he just dip the tip of his finger and just let one drop fall into my mouth because I want some relief from this pain? Wow. So that kind of gives you an idea of what it's like currently in hell. And Abraham's here, and this is what's referred to as Abraham's bosom. And Jesus even said to the thief that was on the cross, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So as you're comparing Scripture to Scripture, you can find out more stuff. So here you have, this is what we know as hell. And then this would be Abe's paradise, Abe's bosom, or paradise. <laughs> paradise. Paradise. <laughs> I just did ice, like literally. Okay, so... That gives you an idea of now what this is like. And so then this connects in, in so many different ways because if Jesus said, I'm going to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, that means that when Jesus died, he went here. And then he talks about in Ephesians and other places about how he's going to take captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. But he escorted all the Old Testament saints from this whole area of Abraham's bosom paradise up to the third heaven. And so now this is only that's left. So it kind of tells you a little bit of what happened before Christ died, that when there were Old Testament saints that were justified with God and had God's righteousness upon them, they didn't go to hell and suffer in hellfire. They were put in this place called paradise, awaiting for the Messiah to make an atonement for sin once and for all. And then he could actually take the keys of hell and death away from the devil, unlock those gates that kept them in there, and then escort them up to the third heaven to be with God for all eternity awaiting their new bodies one day, the resurrected bodies that they're going to get after they're judged. So there's so many things that start to unlock when you can just take that literally. But if you don't, then you're going to miss out on all that. Yeah. So I was just thinking about like how you talking about whether it was a parable or literal. Has God ever like mentioned somebody specific in a parable? Because like when I was reading through that, that was the one thing that seemed off for a parable was that he refers to Lazarus directly. Yes, and that's another key indication of why it's probably not a parable. Like but I can't think of any others. The thief or the shepherd or whatever, but I've never heard of right. like an actual name. Right. Right. So I was just wondering. Yeah, so I don't I don't I've never seen another parable where they mention someone by name. And we also do know that Lazarus was a person that died and that he was resurrected. And I bet you, I just bet you, that he may have gone to this guy's house and spoke to his brothers. I bet. I mean, why not? There have been a lot of people that want to talk to Lazarus. I mean, you start to read the testimony of Lazarus rising from the dead, and you see that they, after he rose from the dead, he gave such credence to Jesus out of his resurrection, they wanted to kill him just as much as they wanted to kill Jesus. So there's just a lot of things that start to unfold when you start to take this as it is written. There's nothing here that indicates that this is a parable, so you take it literally. And it really is that simple. It really is. So that's dealing with, with parables. Um, with symbolism, go to Revelation chapter 1. This one's very easy. A lot of people get tripped up on these sorts of things, but you just have to read things in context, and God will define these things generally, like we already talked about, in the immediate context or as you compare Scripture with Scripture. So Revelation chapter 1, dealing with symbolism. Now this would be an example of God clearly defining symbolism. So Revelation 1, take a look at verse uh, 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. 
His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death, like we just talked about with, with uh, uh, Abraham, Abraham's bosom. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So right there in verse 20, he clearly defines in this passage from verse 12 down to 19, the things that are symbolic. His, his appearance, was that symbolic? It's okay to be wrong. Take a risk. Was his appearance symbolic? No. No, it was not. What was symbolic? The candlesticks and the stars. Yes, because that's what he defined was symbolic. And he said that the stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the candlesticks are the churches. So this even tells you some interesting things that God starts to attribute to these sorts of things. So he equates stars to angels, and he equates candlesticks to churches. Well, what happens with a candlestick? So you take a candle, and you put it in a, in a little candlestick, and you light that candle. What happens over time? It burns down to the point where... It's completely out. You've got to remove it and replace it with another one. This happens all the time in churches. The light goes out, and then it gets removed, and you put another one in. And what about even a candlestick? What's the purpose of a candlestick and a candle? To hold the candle. Yes, and then the candle is supposed to Bring give light. Yes, through the burning, <laughs> it gives light to anything and everything around, but especially in darkness, right? So that's the whole point of a church. A church should be shining its light in the midst of a dark world. If a church is not doing that, and they look more dark than light, then they're not doing their job. It's pretty interesting. That's a good lesson. Or what about this? Do you realize that every church has an angel? That's what it says. There are seven angels and seven candlesticks. So every church has a particular angel that watches over the things that transpire even here at First Baptist Church of Jackson. Now, I've never met our angel. It'd be interesting one day to meet him and to get things from his perspective on the things that he even combats off in the spiritual world that we know nothing of. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you start to pull from that. So you start to see how God defines it. So it's really clear when things are symbolic, he tells you. Right in the context. He defines it for you. It's not complicated. But yet people read that, well, hmm, I wonder what it means that his hair was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. I don't understand what that means. It means exactly what it says. <laughs> exactly what it says. His hair was white as wool, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. I don't have any problem with that. You know, the, the disciples that saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, they saw the exact same vision of Jesus in his glorified state. He was so bright, they hit the deck. They thought they were dead men. Every time you see Jesus in his glorified form throughout the scriptures, every person, it's if they hit the deck like they just died because they can't even stand to be in the presence of God. It's pretty amazing. So that's symbolism. 
using symbols or representations to learn truth and concepts by comparison. He's comparing different objects, and through that we can learn a lot of different things. All right, figures of speech. Give me two volunteers for this one. All right, you can take the first one, Genesis um, 4.10, and you can take the second one, Leviticus 18.25, figures of speech. Uh, give me some other readers. Okay, Sam, you can take 1 Kings 18.27 for our sarcastic statements. And, um, <laughs> yeah, all right, Kendall, you can take uh, Deuteronomy 1.28 for hyperboles. And then we'll just stop there for a second. Okay, so Genesis 4.10, figures of speech. Figuratively explaining something, an example would be like sunrise and sunset. Does the sun rise? Yes. Yeah, not really. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Does the sun set? Yeah. No, no, it doesn't. But from our perspective, <laughs> you're stubborn. But from our perspective, the sun rises and the sun sets. So we know, I mean, just that's a simple example that when it comes to a figure of speech, that's what we say. That's how we speak. That's how God speaks to us. So it's one of those things that people just make mountains out of molehills. All right. So let's go ahead and read that verse. Uh, Genesis 4.10. And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Okay, so are we going to take that literally? Abel's blood is like, hey God, he killed me. I mean, <laughs> no. But that's just a figure of speech. He's like, I saw what happened. I saw what happened. I, I know everything. His blood is crying unto me from the ground because I knew that it happened. As soon as it hit the ground, I knew about it. As soon as it absorbed into the soil, I knew about it. I knew all these things. He can't hide it from me. So I like that one. I like that figure of speech. And then the next one, uh, Leviticus 18.25. Uh, and the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity there, thereof upon it, and the land itself vomited out her inhabitants. Okay, so the land vomits out an inhabitant. Have you ever seen that happen? Yes. <laughs> I've never seen that happen. Yeah. The, the nation of Israel gets conquered. The t ten northern tribes get conquered by the... Anyone know? What people group? What civilization? Egyptians. The what? Not the Jews. Not the Jews. Hey, genius is in the room. <laughs> Anybody? louder. <laughs> I don't know if it's right. It's okay. Know, but it's still okay to be just Acans. Nope, not the Acans. Nope, not the Romans. They didn't work, they weren't around yet. The Egyptians. Not the Egyptians. Philistines. Not the Philistines. The Moabites. I don't Nope. Wait. The Assyrians. Who said that one? Did you say that one? Hey, alright. Second time's a charm. Wow. So the ten northern tribes were taken over by the Assyrians, and so you can just picture the ten northern tribes as they're up there. The, vom the, the land just goes, and just puts them into the Assyrian uh, land, right? <laughs> no, they didn't happen. Or the two southern tribes were conquered by the Babylonians, and so Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't have to go in and conquer them. The land just went, and then, <laughs> sorry, some of you have a nauseous thought, but anyway, they just vomit them back into Babylon. No, they didn't work out that way. But from God's perspective, what he's trying to do is he's trying to really get people to understand. Because when you look at, when you look at the reason why Israel went into captivity, it was because they actually defiled the land. There were certain things that God told them to do about their land that they did not obey. And as a result, God said, fine, I'm going to remove you from the land. The land will vomit you out, and you will go into captivity. So God was using a figure of speech. So God will use those things. Again, looking at the context, we'll understand it. Sarcastic statements. 1 Kings 18.27. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking or he 
is pursuing or he is in a journey or per adventure he sleepeth and must be late. <laughs> I love this one. So this is Elijah, the prophets of Baal. This is amazing. Like it's one of those stories that like my kids even love this one too. So you have this scenario where the prophets of Baal from the morning until night, I mean, they are just crying, oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. And to the point where they're actually taking whips and they're, they're lashing their back and cutting themselves with blood, similar to how the Roman Catholic Church did throughout the Dark Ages, but that's a side point. And they would start doing all this kind of stuff because they're trying to get their God's attention. And Elijah's just like, hey, why don't you talk louder? Maybe he's on a journey. He's just traveling. He went on vacation. Or maybe he's sleeping. Just talk a little bit louder and maybe he'll hear you. You just got to wake him up a little bit. I love it. I love it. So there are times where it's okay to be sarcastic and still be godly. It's all about the motive of your heart. Of course. Of course. So God will put things like that in the Bible. Another one that's really good, too, is Paul is very sarcastic when it comes to the book of 1 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is sarcastic all over the place because they're just a stubborn, rebellious people that God uses that to try to get them uh, even further convicted than what God is already working in them. And so he uses those uh, the, that form of speech there too. All right, hyperboles. Hyperboles, an exaggerated statement used for effect, not meant to be taken literally. Deuteronomy 128. Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims there. Okay, so they said that the walls of the cities are, they're walled up to heaven. Okay, come on, guys. Like, for real? No. No, not at all. Or take a look at 1 Corinthians 13. This is one that we're going to take a look at a little bit. So turn to 1 Corinthians 13. An exaggerated statement. Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians as well as sarcastic statements. He says in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. And then he defines what charity actually is. So... He doesn't speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Like, he doesn't do that. He doesn't have that ability. He doesn't, he doesn't have the gift of, of all prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. He doesn't have that. He hadn't at any point in time given all of his goods to feed the poor. And he most certainly did not give his body to be burned. Like, he didn't do that. He's making exaggerated statements to prove a point. And so I like that. A lot of people will take those things and think that he's speaking literally when he's not. He's speaking in hyperbole. So you have that one. The next one, satirical statements. And this would be a literary work in which irony, derision, or wit is used to expose folly or wickedness. Uh, let's go to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Matthew 23. So Jesus speaking here in verse 23, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought to ye, have, ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. 
I love that word picture. That's amazing. So they're straining at a gnat. They're, they're bothered by this little, little tiny gnat, but yet they're okay just swallowing this giant creature. So they're willing to just point out all these things that they're making people uh, really follow them into false doctrine. And they're, they're majoring on the minors rather than majoring on the majors. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones. And he continues. So he uses that uh, form there, those satirical statements in order to really make them really mad. Uh, and he needs them to be because they, they are not listening to him and they need to be confronted. And then lastly, sanctimony, sanctimony. So this would mean making a pretense of piety or better de de defined as being deceitful in your spirituality. And there's no better place for us to do this than Revelation chapter 3. So look at Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Alright, so Revelation chapter 3, this is our church period in human history. And in verse 17, Jesus says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So we are very deceived about our spirituality. We think that we're okay when we're not. And so that would be another literary form called sanctimony. So all these things are found in the scriptures. And this is where people often will twist things. Uh, but it's really, it's really simple. We don't overcomplicate it. God made things to be revealed to us. He's not going to write his book in order to hide it from us. And if you just look within the context, you'll be able to see very, very clearly about what he's talking about. If he's being symbolic, he'll often define it right there in the text. All right, so our conclusion. Always take a passage literally unless it is impossible. Unless it is impossible to interpret it literally. Observing this key will save you from many many false doctrines. So always take a passage literally unless it is impossible to interpret it literally. There's a lot of people that are just in some super, super false doctrines just because they, they are not willing to be obedient to this rule of Bible study. Some of these examples of false doctrines that can really trap people, one of them is transubstantiation. So anyone know what that is? We've talked about that on and off. Yep. Where like, you're Catholic, you believe you're eating the body and blood of Christ. Yes. So people that are mainly Catholic, Catholics would believe this, that when they take communion or they're at mass and they take the wafer and the wine, that it literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. And they go to John chapter 6 and they say, well, we're taking this literally. So this is an instance where they would actually be observing this rule. And as they're going through John chapter 6, they see it says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, I have no part with you. So you have to literally consume the body and blood of Jesus in order to be part of the body of Christ. You'd read that and you're like, well, yeah, I guess so. But as you go through the context and you hit the latter part of John chapter 6, you see that Jesus says... The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. They're spiritual and they are life. I'm not telling you to literally eat my body and drink of my blood. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus actually said that and meant that? That would violate, I mean, a bunch of stuff in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Cannibalism, in case you didn't know this, is outlawed in the Bible. You're not supposed to eat people. 
<laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's your takeaway for tonight. Don't eat people. Don't eat people. Don't drink their blood. You're not supposed to do that. <laughs> and yet you have Catholics who call themselves Christians that they actually think that it's okay to eat the body and the blood of Jesus. It's very strange. But they'll do that. Another one is uh, speaking in tongues. You know, the passage that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 13. Charismatics will go to that passage and use verse 1 to say, See, there's a tongue of angels. And we should want to speak that tongues of angels. It's like, no, no, no. That's not what he's talking about. He's exaggerating. He's building a, a case with them by using exaggeration. He uses tongues of men and of angels. Because every time that an angel speaks in the Bible, what language do they speak? Hebrew. Hebrew. Not once does an angel speak to a man or to a woman, and then it has to be interpreted by someone that had the gift of the interpretation of tongues into their language. So that should tell you something right out of the gate. I like that. Or even the, the belief in universalism, and that's the belief that there isn't a literal hell. And it's because of Luke 16... They take that, well, that's just a parable. Or when Jesus speaks, he, he's not actually talking about that. Do you realize that Jesus taught more on hell than he did about heaven? If hell wasn't literal, then why would Jesus teach so much about it? These are just simple things that people that just don't believe the Bible because they don't want to. Because if they actually believe the Bible, that means that they're held accountable to it. And so they excuse it away by saying, well, that's just not literal. Oh, that's just a metaphor. Or that's just, no, that was just, and they just make up all these excuses that are just wrong. And people end up in false doctrine. So play it safe. If the Bible says something, I tend to just side on the fact that it's literal. When I read stuff and I see about like the Leviathan and where he is and certain things like that, I take it literally. I do. Like, we went over this in Genesis 11. They were building a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Do I believe that? Yes, I, I must. If I'm a Bible, Bible believer, then I must believe that. So there's something about the top of that tower that would have caused them to be able to reach up to the third heaven without God. I may not know all the answers on how that would actually work out. But as I read the Bible, God starts to put more and more pieces together. So there's things like that that you would do well if you just take the Bible literally, unless it is very, very clear that it should not be taken literally. So, all right, any questions on that? Okay, amazing. Right on time. All right, so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll head down and we'll pray. Or we'll go. Yeah, we'll pray now. And we'll pray down down there too. We'll pray together. Um, any particular prayer requests before we head out that you want the group to be praying for? Anybody? Yeah. Um, I have a few people who are trying to get to come to church, um, or I, like, Nick came to Ninja Hub mm -hmm. and wanted to come to youth group and stuff like that. Um, I'm just trying to, or like my manager at Sonic, I'm trying to invite her to you, um, the Thanksgiving service. So I'm just trying to look for those open doors and not... I don't know, not like ruin a relationship or anything like that. I really want to um, just be that. Like, yeah. yeah. Good. Good. All right. Pray about that. Anybody else have anything? All right. Be praying about the Bible study tomorrow, if you're going or not. Um, we need to be praying about that. Be looking for some opportunities. Sometimes we have them right in front of us. We just don't take them. So be praying for an opportunity. If you do that, you will start to see some right in front of your face. So start doing that. Even small opportunities like coming to winter camp. 
coming to church. Maybe your friend can come to the Christmas party. So we'll be praying for each other about that. Okay. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these things that are really simple, but they do change a lot of things. We tend to make the Bible very complicated because we just don't want to believe it. So I pray, God, that you would uh, change our hearts and change our minds. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.